0: Amen. If you would please remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, beginning at verse 1 through verse 15. Following the reading of Scripture, uh, we will sing together the Gloria Patri, which is printed for you in your bulletin. So Matthew 28, verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. Amen. Let us bow to the Lord in a moment of prayer. Heavenly Fathers, we come to your word this morning. I pray that you would visit us with the power of your spirit. And to give us insight and understanding, pray that the truth, that I might be able to proclaim it as you would want it proclaimed, and that in all this we would bring glory to you and worship and adore our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. We come to the account of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, each of the gospel writers. Uh, presents it in their own distinct way, many similarities between the stories, but it, like the other accounts of the christ 's life, are not without critics <clears throat> who complain of the what they call discrepancies among the the accounts, for example, the number of the women Matthew gives two Mark gives three. Luke names three and says there are some others, and John only has one. well there we know there's no there's no discrepancy. There were up to five women uh, that were part of this group that came to the tomb that morning, and the different gospel writers focus on uh, some of the specific ones for their own purposes. Another alleged discrepancy is What time did they come to the tomb? Was it while it was still dark? Was it after dawn? Uh, It was early. They're all in agreement that it was early in the day. Um, And again, it's a a tempest in a teapot kind of thing. Another one that's common in terms of criticism is how many angels were there? Uh, Matthew and Mark have one. Luke and John have two. But like James Boyce and R.C. Sproul say, well, if there were two, there were one. So uh, there's really no objection that you can lodge against uh, even that kind of criticism. So the the passage before us, we're kind of going to group it in four different pieces. The first is just to review some of the events of that Easter morning. In our account here in Matthew, the first four verses, the basic description is on that first day of the week, as Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were going to the tomb, they were going to anoint him with further spices. We know that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had prepared the body of Jesus before they put him in the tomb with the spices, but the women were going to come and do some further preparation of the body. That while they were on their way there and about to get there, there was this earthquake, an angel came down, uh, rolled the stone away, sat on it, and the guards became like dead men. And if we call together the various resurrection accounts, the general progress of events uh, goes something like this. That the, the five women were making their way to the tomb, there's this earthquake... Uh, They they probably see it from a little bit of a distance. Uh, Then when they get close enough, they see that the tomb is open. They're wondering what in the world they should do. So they send Mary Magdalene back into the city and to tell the disciples. And she gets a hold of Peter and John. They run to the tomb and... um, um, or, um, and, uh, and they, they get there to the tomb. John's the younger of the two. He gets to the tomb first, uh, but stays outside, and then Peter, huffing and puffing, makes it there, and go, but he just boldly goes into the tomb. Now, there's an interesting play on words, on the Greek words for see, that are part of John's account, that are interesting to think about. Uh, the uh, when John gets there and he looks in and he sees the grave clothes clothes it's the Greek word blepo, which is the most common word for just seeing. So in other words, he just looks at it. <clears throat> and then when Peter gets there and he goes inside the tomb and he sees the um, the grave clothes. It's a different word for see. It's the word "thero," which from which we get our word theory or theorize. So when Peter gets there and goes in and he's looking at it, he's trying to figure it out. He's trying to come up with a scheme of what's going on. And then John, he goes in as well, and it's a third different word for see. It's the word orao, which communicates the idea of seeing with understanding. So John is having one of those aha moments. He sees the grave close, and it's all beginning to come together and to make sense. <clears throat> so after Peter and John leave, then there's <clears throat> the appearances of Jesus on that first day. We have Jesus appearing very first to Mary Magdalene. She had returned... And John gives us that description. Then Jesus appears to the women after they leave the tomb and they're waking their way back. He appears to them. That's in Matthew's account. Then at some point that morning, Jesus appears to Peter. Uh, Later in the day, he appears to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And that evening, he will appear to all the disciples except Thomas in the upper room. And then there were other appearances coming in the coming weeks. But all of these appearances and the eyewitness testimony to the risen Christ helps to make the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ one of the most substantiated events in all of human history. In the first-hand evidence that he was alive. Well, we come back to the account of Matthew in the story of the angels. And what we see in the second part is the four imperatives of the angels to the women. And they're instructive for us as we think about them. <clears throat> and this is all recorded for us in verses 5 through 7. Uh, it would The first imperative is the word come, now it might be as we're reading this that the first command should be "Do not be afraid," but it, "Do not be afraid" isn't given to us, at least not in this text, in the form of a an imperative or a command. It's more of an appeal. It's more of an encouragement. Uh, Dear women, you don't need to be afraid. An encouragement to them, not so much a command. Don't be afraid, though that happens in Scripture too. But here it's more of an encouragement or an enticement for them to trust. But the first command is come. Come to the tomb. Come on, come up to the tomb. Now, why was that important? Well, there were several things that would have kept the women from being bold to come to the tomb. One is... Uh, it was a even their own their own fear of the place they were in a graveyard and something magic not magical something um, mysterious had taken place something significant it would have been a fearful situation they would have hung back they wouldn't have come up to look in and so the angels command is very important I want you to come come look into the tomb come see They might have been a fleeting fear of the Romans. The Romans had sealed the tomb. And to break that seal would have encountered severe penalties. So they might have been hanging back for that reason. Maybe it is their own sinfulness in one sense. The awe of the place would have made them hang back. But the angel commanded them, come here to the tomb. And the command to come is a a reminder, an indicator, an anticipation of the gospel. The, the gospel is indeed an invitation. We have Jesus' invitation, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So the gospel is on the one hand an invitation, but the thing that we need to appreciate is that the gospel is a command. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin. Bow the knee. Embrace him. It's not that God is weakly waiting for you to do something. He's demanding it of you. And if you will not come, you will experience his justice against you. And so the gospel is a command. Come. Come to the Lord. Come bow the knee to Him. Come repent. It's a call to you. And there's no salvation until you do that. Until by the grace of God you respond. So the first command of the angels is come. The second commandment, imperative, is see. Now that seems kind of obvious. Come and see where the Lord lay. Come and see the place where he lay. They wanted, the angel wanted them to look into the tomb. And Charles Spurgeon suggests there are five things that, we can, that the women could see, we can see as they come to the tomb. The first thing that we can see as we look at the grave is the condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ the marvel of his redeeming love. That the Son of God would condescend to become man. That he would condescend to suffer in our place. That he would be willing to suffer and to die and to be buried. And when we look at the tomb, we see the amazing love of Christ. In all that he endured for us is in his sufferings, it's in his death, and it's in his burial. <clears throat> the amazing condescension of God. Second thing we see as we look at the tomb is the horror of our sin. For what was it that put Jesus in that tomb? <clears throat> what was it that put Jesus on that cross? It was your sin, it was my sin. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brings us peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. It's our sin that put Jesus in that tomb. And so when we look at the tomb, we have to be gripped and we begin to be gripped with the horror of our own sin and to hate it and want to forsake it because it's displeasing to God. A third thing that we look at, we see when we look into the tomb, is the reminder that we too will die. It's a reminder of our mortality. Uh, Jesus died, and we too, if we, if we tarry until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we too will die. Our life here on this earth will end. And it brings us to a sober reflection on the importance of being prepared, of being ready for that day, of walking with the Lord and trusting in Him. A fourth thing we see in looking into the tomb is we see that Jesus isn't there, He's risen. He's conquered death, and the glory of that resurrection is the empty tomb. And the interesting thing, in all the opposition against the gospel in that, or those early days and really throughout history, but particularly in those early days, there were lots of different th- attacks against Christ, against the gospel. But the one thing nobody ever said or ever denied was that the tomb was empty. No one in that whole generation and the whole time said, no, there was, the tomb is not empty. Because as soon as they might have said, well, the, there's somebody in the tomb, they could have said, now, come over here, come over, look, look, look in there. Do you see anybody in the, there? The tomb is empty. They couldn't deny that fact. Now, we're going to see all kinds of uh, uh, lies told to try to disguise why the tomb was empty <clears throat> but they never denied the empty tomb. Uh, they um, they had to acknowledge it. Uh, the um, hope that we have is not only the evidence of the empty tomb, but it's also the resurrection appearances of Christ. We have the evidences that Jesus is alive. He's not in the tomb. When we look in the tomb, we see that he's not there. Well, that alone isn't our hope. Our hope is in the resurrected Christ. Nevertheless, that's a significant <clears throat> thing that we see. And the fifth thing that we see in uh, looking at the tomb or looking into the tomb is that the reminder that we also will rise again. <clears throat> it's a great—the fact that the tomb was empty and Jesus is not there—that He has risen. Is that Jesus will provide for us a complete salvation, and that complete salvation includes uh, your resurrection from the dead on the last day. That on that day your soul and body will be joined together, and thus will you will always be, forever be with the Lord. In the empty tomb, the resurrection of Christ is a <clears throat> is a reminder of our resurrection. That Jesus is a complete Savior. He, the writer of Hebrews says he saves to the uttermost those who come to God through him because he ever lives to make intercession for them. That uh, we're told in, in John that when he comes again, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We will experience the, the wonder, the glory, the, the, the hope of the resurrection. Those five wonderful things are part of what we look at, what we see when we look into the tomb. The third imperative of the angel is go. It would be very tempting to kind of stay by the tomb and reflect on that. You might not want to stay in a graveyard all the time, but nevertheless to be not anxious to go away. But the angel tells them, I need you to go. He's going to, the angel is commissioning them, commissioning them to take the message of the resurrection And later on in this chapter, we'll look at Jesus' commission to the entire church to take the message of the resurrection to all nations. Here, their specific commission is to take the message of the resurrection to the disciples. But the command for them, for you and for me, is we need to go. We need to go go and communicate the truth. Go communicate the work of God and The the fourth command that goes along with that is and tell. Uh, The message for the disciples was tell them that Jesus has risen from the dead. He's not here, he has risen just as he said. And uh, ultimately he tells them, tell them to go to Galilee where they will see me. Now that doesn't rule out the earlier times when they'll see the Lord, but there will be a, a, a grand gathering of them. We have John's story about how they're by the Sea the Sea of Galilee and Jesus is there and provides breakfast for them and they see him and up to 500 at one time see Christ in Galilee. But it's a... So it doesn't... Uh, it doesn't mitigate against the earlier appearances but it's those appearances he's directing them to. So the third part of the... The third part of the episodes here is... Uh, The appearance to the women, it's in verses 8 to 10. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came uh, to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So Jesus appears to the women and gives them the encouragement and the help uh, of, of his presence. And then the fourth thing, the fourth part, and the last part of this account is the beginning of lies. The opposition to the gospel begins already at this point. Because we have the soldiers who some years ago I preached on them. And I've referred to them as the reluctant witnesses to the resurrection. The soldiers were, in one sense, the first witnesses outside of the immediate <clears throat> disciples that that preached the gospel of the resurrection. Now they didn't want to do that they that wasn't that wasn't what what was in their hearts uh, they uh They were very reluctant to do that, but there was they had to say something about it. And they go to the priest, and the priest also are reluctant witnesses to the resurrection. And the guards go to the chief priest, and they tell them the angel came down, and it, there was this earthquake, and the angel rolled the stone away, and it sat on the stone, and, and we were terrified. And the chief priest knew that this, something had to be done because <clears throat> they were not going to believe in that. Remember, <clears throat> excuse me, remember what they said when Jesus was hanging on the cross? If only you will come down from the cross, we will believe in you. Now we knew they were lying, but at the same time they said, if you come down from the cross, we will believe in you. Now Jesus has done something far greater than coming down from the cross. He has been victorious over death. Will they believe? Well, of course not. They have the evidence. They have the information. But they cannot believe because they will not believe. It's not a problem of information. It's not a problem of truth. It's a problem of the heart they will not believe <clears throat> even though someone has risen from the dead it confirms their their response confirms the the words of Jesus Christ in his parable of the rich man and Lazarus remember um Lazarus and was in Abraham's bosom <clears throat> the rich man was in hell and he asked for Abraham to send Lazarus rising from the dead back to his brothers that they would believe if someone rose from the dead. And Abraham says, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe even if someone rises from the dead. It's a problem of the heart and of the will. And so, the conspiracy of lies is is born, the chief priests say to the soldiers, Tell everyone that the soldiers, that the disciples came and they stole Jesus' body away while we were asleep. And to say that is a terrible thing. It's, that's a punishable offense, it's a capital offense. In Acts chapter 12, we're told the story of how Peter was delivered from prison by the angel. And the consequence of that was that Herod, he tried to find Peter, couldn't find him anywhere. He cross-examined the guards. And the result of that was then he ordered that they be executed. But the chief priest said to the soldiers, and if Pilate hears about this, we'll, uh, we'll satisfy him for you. Now, I'm not sure if they believed them, Maybe they took the money and ran. I don't know. But they took the money and they did what the chief priest said. They admitted that the disciples came and stole the body. And Matthew says, this has been widely circulated among the Jews even to this day. And he's talking about the day in which he was writing this, which was about 30 years later. That same lie has been perpetuated throughout the centuries since Christ rose from the dead even to our own day. Uh, one example of this, in, the ni- in 1967, there was a book written by, called The Passover Plot. And in that book, among other um, lies that he said, he, he spoke about the disciples stealing Jesus' body. So even in, in the 1960s, people want to believe this lie because that book sold over 100,000 copies in the first five months of publication. Without the work of the Spirit, a person will not believe, even if someone rises from the dead. And so much of unbelief, so much of uh, false religions are to cover over the truth and to perpetuate lies. And in Sproul's commentary on this passage, he has a paragraph I'd like to read to you of how people go to at lengths to try to obscure the truth. He says, I get annoyed when people want to bring all religions of the world together and make them of equal validity and truth. In America, all religions have equal protection under the law, But equal protection under the law does not mean equal validity or equal truth. So I am offended when people mention the name of Muhammad, Confucius, Buddha, or any other founders of the world's religions in the same breath as the name of Jesus. This I know. Muhammad died and stayed dead. So did Confucius. Buddha, as enlightened as he may have been, died and stayed dead. None of these other leaders provided an atonement for the sins of the people who put their trust in them. All of them are dead, save one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone made atonement for our sins and was raised for our justification. Many do not and will not believe in the resurrected Christ. But it's our calling. It's our calling to go and to tell. That God in his mercy might break through the hardness of hearts and call them to faith. That's our calling, to come, to see, to go, and to tell. And it's our hope, my hope, that you would hear the encouragement of the angels, hear their message, hear their calling, but, and, and see in the empty tomb the hope that you have so that you will not be afraid, that you will be encouraged, that you'll fear not, you'll rejoice that he has risen. It's the glory of the resurrected Christ, which is our hope and our peace and our strength. And it's that on which we need to focus. That's which we attend to. There's an interesting story from the life of Michelangelo. On one occasion, he turned to his fellow artists with great frustration, and he said to them, Why do you keep filling gallery after gallery with endless pictures on the one theme of Christ and his weakness? Christ on the cross and most of all Christ hanging dead why do you concentrate on the passing episode as if it were the last work as if the curtain dropped down there on disaster and defeat that dreadful scene lasted only a few hours but to the unending eternity Christ is alive Christ rules and reigns and triumphs and he's right We don't stay in defeat. We remember Christ and his victory, a victory in which you and I share by his grace. May we joy in that hope and may it fill us with uh, hope and peace as we trust in the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the call of the gospel that you have given to us through your word. We thank you for calling us to embrace the the crucified, buried, risen Christ, the ascended Lord. Thank you, Father, for the glorious truth, truth of his resurrection that gives us hope over our sin and over our defeat and over our discouragement. Help us to live in the victory of his resurrection and then as we have opportunity to share the, the richness of that truth with uh, those that come our way. And that you might use that to the glory of your name to bring people to bow the knee and embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Be glorified among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.